Hey. All right. There we go. Thank you. All right. Okay. So, hey, did we take an offering? Yes? Okay. So, so we've got uh, everything. Okay, okay. John, you're Take on. this. I don't want this. Thank you. All right. Jay. <laughs> we, uh, <clears throat> 40 years ago today, my, my parents uh, were insanely happy. That was the day I moved out of the house. No, just kidding. <laughs> my parents used to, uh, on every birthday until they passed away, they would both call me and they would say, you know, whatever day it was, they would go back and they would say, you know, 26 years ago today, we were the happiest people in the world. And my mom would always then tell me about, you know, what it was like when I was born. And, uh, and, and then they would always send me, uh, usually, I mean, they're, they're really conscious about this. They, the little thing, they give me a dollar a year. You know, back in the day, you know, a dollar was a lot of money when I was a kid. You could buy a house with a dollar. <laughs> and they would always give me a dollar and then one to grow on. And so I told Kathy, I said, when I turn 60, I'm going to start giving myself $10 a year. <laughs> I mean, it's my money. I can do whatever I want with it, right? She wasn't really cool with that. Uh, so what, what, how many of you guys uh, were here last week and heard Tim? Oh, maybe a better question. How many of you weren't here last week and you didn't hear the guy that spoke last week, Tim? Okay, please li- go on our website and please listen to that talk. Was that like, I, I told him, I said, man, that was the best message we've ever had in our church. Not kidding, not exaggerating. Uh, it was a profound, profound uh, Sunday. And, and I'm honest, I'm not prone to that kind of overstatement. So, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something better today. No, I, I wish I could. I wish I I wish I was sure that this was gonna be better than that. Uh, I want to talk today about doing life together. And uh, you know, it's 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 not like it's a novel idea, but when when you start trying to put together what it it what elements of a life make life work, this is like at the top of the list. The, you know, you could argue about what, what elements in a person's life that make their life really work well, uh, what those are. But I, I want to show you something that, that really, it's, it's something you can trace all the way through the Bible. And it's common sense. In fact, we're going to look at a passage. Uh, you might not be very familiar with this book in the Bible, but we're going to look at a passage from the book of Proverbs. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to Proverbs chapter 27. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, under the chair seats in front of you, you can use one of these loaner Bibles, and it's on page 460. And it's a, it's, it's, the book of Proverbs is a book of, of observational wisdom. In other words, it's a bunch of little statements, little sayings, sort of the kind of thing, a, a motto or something that you might write on a, a you know, note card and put it on your refrigerator, on your mirror. And these were collected... Uh, by the people of Israel. Most of them were written by a man named Solomon, who was a famous king in ancient Israel. And they were observations that wise, these, these wise people had made about life and about how God designed life and, and how to live within God's design in a way that, that you know, gave you the, the best chance of making life work. So in Proverbs 27, verse 17 it says, and your, your translations are all going to say a little differently, but it's, it's very simple. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. 
Let me read that again. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. Now, I brought with you today some of, I'm, I'm an amateur cook, and this is my uh, amateur cook knife set. And uh, when, when Solomon wrote this, he was making a statement drawing from the real world that he lived in. And in the real world, they had all kinds of, of tools and instruments that they used that needed to be sharp. You know, today we have chainsaws. Back then, they didn't have chainsaws, but they had axes. And they knew a sharp axe made uh, the work easier, and a dull axe made it a lot harder. So they, would, they learned that uh, steel is, is steel, they had stone, but typically they use steel as a cutting tool, different shapes of cutting tool, and they learned to sharpen that cutting tool, you usually needed to use either uh, some other kind of a steel sharpening instrument or stone, like today we use whetstone, right? I don't know if you've ever used a whetstone, but it's a real good way to put a sharp edge on a knife. But uh, I have two different kinds of knives here, and Solomon said, he, 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 he assumed people understood this, that, that a dull knife is unuseful. Would, would we agree to that? That like, like this knife right here is dull. I, I, don't, I found this in my trash, in, inside my house. It's not my knife. It didn't come from my family. It was a strange moment. I thought, is there someone else living in my house that I don't know about? But, I, you know, I, was, I dropped something in the trash, and I was trying to find it. And as I'm pulling trash out, I find this knife. And I thought, wow, I'm always looking for, you know, a nice new knife. And, and, and I, I checked it out and went, oh, I know, I know why they threw it away. It's like completely dull. And it's got all these dings in it. And I was trying to think, what, what, what was this knife used for? Uh, I know what it wasn't used for, being this dull. It wasn't used for much. Uh, and the truth is, when, when a knife gets dull, it's just not worth much, is it? Now, I, I know there's certain things you can use it for. You can use it to cut butter, etc. Now, this knife, I'm not going to put my thumb on this knife. Because <laughs> this morning when I touched it, I noticed it started cutting through the skin just by touching it. Uh, Derek Bergman bought this for me. Derek's a uh, professional cook. And it is really sharp. And I use this knife all the time. It's very, very useful in the kitchen. Uh, we are like these knives. And this is a, a steel sharpener. And so, you know, when you, when you sharpen your knives, you, you know, you learn to do this little motion. And there's, a, there's angles to use. And if you want to finish your knife real well, you use a whetstone. That, this is good for getting uh, the rough edges. And then a whetstone really gets a fine point. I didn't bring that with me. We are like these knives. We are meant to be useful. Our lives are meant to work. But unless our lives really interact in a, in a sharpening sort of motion way, unless we do life together to the degree that our lives are really connecting. Like if this, if this knife right here, which I could sharpen it with this if I took enough time, just doing this is not going to do it right? You have to actually put some energy into the motion of sharpening a knife to get the blade to become something that it isn't. And life is like that. The, the problem is, I'll put this away, I'm liable to injure myself in the middle of the message and people will be fainting and it'll be bad. He's, he's trying to put a picture in our minds and you know, grip our imagination because anybody that's had to work with a tool 
a cutting tool that's not sharp knows how frustrating it can be when it's not sharp. Our lives are not what they could be unless they're being sharpened by other people. But that sharpening process of iron rubbing against iron, one person rubbing against another person, to the degree that's necessary means we have to do life together in a way where we're really known by other people, where our lives open up to other people. And in a sense, he's saying, which is, you know, this is like commonly held wisdom all over the world is, I need you, you need me. You need the person next to you, they need you. It's, it's really that simple. But the fact that we know that doesn't mean that we're still taking advantage of what that means and actually doing life together in a way that allows us to sharpen one another. And another way of saying it is you can't become the person you're meant to be without other people, without their sharpening influence in your life. Now, I'll give you two examples of this. There's a researcher. Uh, I was looking up a book of hers this week. I haven't read it yet. I just heard about her. Uh, her name is Sue Johnson, and I, I did some reading on her this week. She's a real uh, well-known marital therapist, but she's a psychologist, and she's a, a writer and a researcher. And she did a bunch of research that was really interesting, and she said, children, there are lots of things that, that shape a child's sense of themselves, of their worth. But they found in her, and she did this longitudinal study, and she found with some other researchers that the most impacting, the single most impacting influence on a child's sense of worth is a parent's facial expressions as they engage with the child and their tone of voice. Hmm. If parents are constantly making one of these faces or talking in that kind of tone of voice all the time, that child reacts to that and internalizes this sense, I'm not loved. I'm not something. And they begin to think their sense of self-worth and value is very low. Children who are raised, all other things being equal, who are raised with a, a smiling countenance. Not that parents can do it every moment of every day, but if we're conscious that our facial expressions are shaping the self-value of our children with every interaction, we can do profound work in their lives just by that. And then choosing a tone of voice, even when we have to correct them or you know, whatever, that communicates love and concern and care and value. Children internalize that. And then it becomes how they look at the world. When we treat them like they're loved they go out into the world feeling like people are going to love me. Not that they won't be disappointed many times, but they internalize that. Another thing is, there's a little dance that all of us did when we grew up that we're really still doing. It's a dance that goes on our whole lives. And it's a dance, I don't even know who, who, who came up uh, with this insight, but I've shared it with lots of people before, and people, you know, everybody's experienced it, so... It, it comes home is when, when kids are growing up, you take, up, you take your four-year-old out into the playground and you, you know, you're talking with another parent and, and the kids are playing and what a child will do is a child will go off and play but they'll kind of watch where you are. And then if they get upset, they run back over, right? They run back over and they hug you and they're crying and you pick them up and you hug them 
And then they, you know, eventually they calm down, they, they feel soothed, and they go off and they, you know, they play again. But they're always kind of checking out where you are. And as they get older, you notice they go a little further away. And then they go a little further away. And then they graduate. And what, what's happening, you know, research has shown is there's, there's this, these steps that kids go through that they proximity seek. In other words, a parent is this secure base for a child. It's this space where I can go and I can feel safe and when I'm upset and I'm overwhelmed, someone who cares about me will be there and help me to calm down, help me to feel better. And so I proximity seek. I only get as far away as I feel safe. But as kids get loved and and cared for and nurtured, they go further and further away. And we're meant to do that, right? But what's happening is the secure base parent or, or other caregiver that they're attached to, that secure base becomes something, I'm sorry, the, the parent is a safe haven for the child. And every time that kids proximity seek and come back and are loved, they form inside them this secure base. And in the beginning, it's, it's insecure. It's like, it's only up to here. But each interaction of love establishes this base of I know how I'm loved and I internalize it and so I can go a little further away and a little further away, a little further away till pretty soon I'm carrying it around with me. Now, all of us know our base is not very secure, is it? But it was meant to be incredibly secure. You can see the potential of what love can do. And if you just think about this, why do you think God commands us to love just think he he wanted to give us something to do you know i made all these people what are they going to do down there oh i know what i'll do let's tell them to love you know there's something a little more important to it we are designed to thrive when we're loved we can't live without love self-love only goes so far wouldn't you agree with me we need to be loved in this selfless way to thrive. And so God says, everyone around you needs to be loved. You need to be loved. So I want you to love one another. And I want you to experience love through me and my love for you through other people. And if you do that, it will begin to form something in you, a sense of value and self-worth that you can walk around with and, and live as a, as a secure person in the world that you're in. And because you're secure, you can begin to love other people out of that base of security that's been put in you. And you can receive the benefit of what happens when you love other people. People often reciprocate. And we enjoy the experience of this reciprocation. Well, if we don't do life together, we, or to whatever degree we do life together, to whatever degree we experience the love that we really need for life, I mean, can you see that? It's, this is a real simple concept, and I, I think most everybody understands it. Now, the thing is, we are meant to live in a community that's bathed in and shaped by God's love. Because we all can agree that we don't have enough love for one another, we don't have enough patience for one another. When I told you the story about how kids grow and thrive, anybody that's, that's a parent here is thinking, oh boy, 
What kind of facial expressions do I have with my kids? What kind of facial expressions did I have with my kids? What kind of facial expressions will I have when I have kids, if I have kids? Boy, I'm glad, I wish I would have learned that a long time ago. But we all know that. It's, it's, it's common sense. We just don't understand the impact of it. Most of us know if we treat our children well, they, they do better, right? But we don't realize how much just those two little things of facial expression and tone of voice shape a child deeply. A lot of us were shaped deeply, positively and negatively by our parents. And humans are not adequate as sources of love. We have to experience God's love, which is this love that says, no matter what, I love you, period. John, I love you, period. It's not a pay-for-play thing. Where only, God only loves us when we pay for it. He just loves us, period. Just like children are made to be loved no matter what. Now, I know it's hard, right? There are times when you get really tired and you get fried. I remember when my dad moved in with us for a few years and he had trouble sleeping at night. And there were times, uh, and I was his main caregiver uh, because he did not want Kathy to have, you know, to, to change his adult undergarments. And so that was my job. And I remember my dad would get up in the middle of the night multiple times, and there were times I wandered out of my room. I, didn't, I was so tired. I was so disoriented. I didn't know where I was. I opened the door of my bedroom, and I, I was kind of like, where am I? And, I? and my dad used to call my name. He'd say, John, John Lieb, John Lieb, <laughs> like, like, I wasn't, like some other John was going to come in his room, right? You know? John Barnes is here. What do you want with me, sir? But you, I just get so tired and just so fried. And, but love is demanded when you're, kid, when you're a child and when you're an adult and everywhere in between, isn't it? It's just part of what we're supposed to show to each other. Uh, but it's not easy. And let me tell you, there were times, there, there, were, there were a couple of nights, just truth in advertising here, where I yelled at my dad. I was so tired. I came in and I said, Dad, don't you know I'm like going crazy because you keep waking me up? You know, my dad, he can't help it. He just, he wakes up in the middle of the night. He's, he doesn't know where he is and he calls for me or, you know, he needs something. But I, I just like lost it a couple of times. And I went back in the room, you know, Kathy wakes up hearing me screaming at my dad. And I just felt, oh my gosh, I just, you know, my dad's just looking at me with a sad face. Because a couple of times he, you know, he was just confused about where he was. And I'm yelling, his, you know, his son's yelling at him. But I was so tired, I just melted down. That, that's, and I loved my dad, deeply. But it just shows you, you know, we have limits to the love that we have. Maybe you've experienced that before. You know, once or twice I yelled at my kids. I know none of you, you probably never yelled at your kids. And, and, and that wasn't a good experience for them. And I don't mean I yelled at them like, no, don't you put your hands in that fire. <laughs> it was a little more, you know, run the mill than that. And, and we do that. We all get to the limit of our love, and we need another source of love that we can experience, that we can then express to other people, and, and they can express to us. That's what the church is supposed to be. The people of God who are bathed in God's love 
and shaped by God's love, and then they're expressing that, God, that love to one another. But they're, they're choosing to begin to do life together. So what went wrong? Well, back in the book of Genesis, I'm just going to refer to it. I won't have you turn there. In Genesis 3, we read this story of how God made Adam and Eve. And there's actually the story is told sort of in this periscope narrative way where it starts off real broad and general in chapter 1. Then it becomes a little more specific in chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, it goes into this real detail and particularly how things went wrong. Because we look around the world and think, gosh, there's, there's a lot of beauty and you know, amazing design and wonder, but there's also this mess in the middle of it. How did this happen? And if you want to, if you ever, if you ever find people are confused about what the, what the Bible's all about, because sometimes, uh, like, I, I've talked to people who uh, want to start reading the Bible, and they start reading it on their own, and they get into the part where there's all these numbers, like, and so on, the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 years old, there's... 59,300, and they're reading this and going, what, what is this about? Who are these people, you know? Uh, and, and they get in here, and, and uh, so-and-so begets so-and-so, and these names they can't pronounce, and places they've never heard of. And they get, kind of get lost. And, and you'd think that this Bible, that this book is really confusing, but it's got one narrative. There is a narrative, there's a plot to the whole book. And, and, it, and there's four movements in it. And the book of Genesis describes two of them. There's, there's creation, everything was good. Then there was a fall where everything went wrong. Then there's this redemption, this act of redemption by God. That's where Christ comes in. Then there's the restoration at the end of the book, when we read the book of Revelation, the restoration of everything. But when you look at like Genesis 3 and the story of where things went wrong, it says that God made Adam and Eve, and then they were tempted by this serpent, Satan, and some of this may seem like a fairy tale to you, but when you look at human beings and human history, you, think, you look at that like most people have who, who take a serious look at it and go, talking snakes and all that, whatever you think about that, what, they, what Genesis describes about why things are messed up the way they are is amazingly compelling because it describes this perfect situation and how two people decided when they were tempted, and the, and the, the temptation was this, and this is, this is where the whole idea of doing life together broke down. Because God had made Adam, and then he said, this is, I've made all these wonderful things, but it's not good for Adam to be alone. And, and in the story, that's the first time that the Bible says something's not good for, for people to be alone. And so he made Eve. And then he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. In other words, create community everywhere. Do life together. And God did that because he himself is a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This perfect community. And he made us in his image. And so he put us in this perfect environment, the first two parents. And he said, live this way. And the temptation came along. And the temptation was this. The the snake came along and said, listen, God doesn't want you to do this. But if you do this thing that he told you not to do, he said that, you know, this won't be a good outcome if you do it. But I'm telling you, he knows if you do that, you're going to be like him. You'll be like God. And the pitch was, you won't need anybody. Because God himself doesn't need us. He made the world. He didn't need us. God's a community of Father, Son, Spirit, who's existed forever, who's infinite and perfect, loving, righteous, good. 
He made us so we can enjoy Him and enjoy what He made. And He made this perfect environment. So He says that the serpent says, eat this fruit that God's told you not to touch and you're going to be like God. And what happened immediately was they went from being naked and unashamed, loved, uh, enjoying their environment to immediately feeling ashamed of their bodies and hiding their bodies and and what they felt was shameful from each other. And they they had no shame before. And suddenly had the pain of shame, which you know, all of us know, the shame is painful. They'd never experienced it. And then the next thing is, when God draws near to them, it says that God comes walking in the garden like he, used, he was in the habit of. They hid from him. They, get, they hid behind bushes or trees or some sort of foliage. And God's walking around going, like, you know, it's, it's kind of a comical thing. Like, God's going, now maybe this is a game in the beginning, but where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? He's calling out to them. And, it, and they kind of pop out, here we are. And he goes, what's going on? And they said, well, we heard you, and, and we, were, we were afraid because we were naked. And he said, who told you you were naked? And then they told the story. And what, in, in the telling of the story, they turned against each other. Adam and Eve turned against each other, and they were like finger-pointing and blaming. And this, this idea that I, don't, I can be like God and I don't need people is what started the whole mess that we're in. And that idea is passed down. And you can trace back any, any problem we have today, any social problem we have today is rooted in the fact that I don't think I need you, and so I can do whatever I want to you. I can take whatever I want from you. I can say whatever I want about you. I can ignore you. It comes back to this idea that we lost something, and we're still struggling with that. And that shame and fear... Those, those two feelings are at the root of all this mess. And, and it, so the world produced two expressions of that. Like modern culture if you, around the world, and I'm, I'm kind of generalizing here, but I think you can track with me. You have traditional cultures in the world where the community, the family is everything, right? People, the individuals don't mean anything. I don't mean at all, but you know, what the family needs is what you need to be concerned about. And if, if you're in a family of farmers, but you dream of being an artist, tough. You need to, you need to work on the family farm. Uh, the family has you know, a market business, and they sell produce. But you, know, you want to be a dancer, tough. That's one culture. The, the, the community is the most important thing. Over here, we have a culture of which you know western culture in america in particular illustrates this idea of the individual is the most important thing in the world and uh, robert bella who's a sociologist coined this phrase expressive individualism and what he said was the the ethos of almost all americans as as they research this is this idea that i find my identity by following whatever desires are in my heart, that I define myself. Nobody can define me but me. And that I pursue my authentic self by taking 
whatever path my desires and feelings carry me. And that no one has the right to tell me anything else. No one has authority over me. So these are the two competing versions of of human flourishing. One says the group matters and that's it. And you don't matter. And now it's it's not that they don't overlap some. But generally you go to cultures in the world and there'll be this culture or this culture. Now the gospel comes along and says this. They're both right, but you're going you're to live in one or the other. And yesterday, this last week, I was up at Ashland uh, at, a, at a seminar doing, helping with uh, facilitating small groups there, and I had several people in my small group from different countries. I had a man from uh, Burkina Faso. I had a man from, uh, from Europe. Where was he from? He was from, he was Dutch. And then I had another guy who... Uh, Actually, he left my group after a while because he had to go to another group. But uh, I forget which country he was from. But at a certain point, we were talking about uh, just people were exchanging stories. And I heard them, because I was thinking about teaching this, I heard them describing those two realities. And the man who was from a country where the community was everything was just describing how strange it was in America. Because he's here for a few months on like a study visit. And he was just describing how strange it is the way Americans live. You know, how individualistic we are, how we think. And uh, then another guy was, uh, had been living for a while in, in a culture like theirs, in, in a highly communal culture, and he was talking about how strange that was. That, that uh, like, there's a missionary uh, down in uh, Argentina and they were, he was with the tri- uh, the, it was a family, and the wife was writing in her diary uh, how, how tribal these people were, how everything was about us. And so they didn't have uh, toilet facilities. And so when you had to use a toilet, you went down by the river, and they had like a little latrine area. And so uh, she, would, <laughs> she would get up to go down to the bathroom, and the tribe would follow her, and they would say, hey, come on, the white woman's going down to the toilet. Let's go with her. <laughs> I mean, does that sound like, like your idea of an ideal world? <laughs> but they just all walked down and they stood around while, you know, she's using the bathroom and they just, it was just, she said, it took me a little while to get used to it. <laughs> I don't know if it would, I would ever get used to that, just to tell you, I'm, I'm too American for that. But I get it, you know what I mean? Cultures, how different they are. But both these ideas are right. The sad thing about Traditional cultures is they don't make room for what the individual can contribute that's outside of what they're used to. And then the sad thing our culture, our hyper-individualistic culture, has done, and lots of sociologists are, and and all of us are are seeing this. I think in the next 10 years, this is going to become a discussion we're going to hear, hopefully, in, in, in public forums, that hyper-individualism, expressive individualism, like a lot of people say, Robert Putnam, other people say, it, it destroys the fabric of our community. And it undermines all the institutions that make our life meaningful. And, and so we're caught, Americans are caught in this tension of, why don't people think about we enough? Why don't people care about their neighbor? And then we support the idea and and promote the idea that everyone determines their own reality 
These two things don't go together. You understand that? They do not work together. And I have a friend who said, and economically, he said, what's interesting is, we're moving towards further and further into an economy where everybody's a contract worker. And I don't know about you, but some people who are contract workers like it, but most people don't. But we want to assert that everybody has a right to their own reality. But we want all those <laughs> myriad realities to somehow work together. And what, what Solomon noticed was metal sharpens metal. There's a design to things that we thrive when not we make up our own purpose, but we discover our purpose in God's design. This world, this traditional world over here, can't allow for that. And, but they have the beauty of community and all the good that that brings because we do need each other. But a lot of people have needs that the community won't recognize and respect. And then over here, we have all the people who say, uh, I can sharpen myself. I can sharpen myself. I can, I can be whatever I want to be. And you can't. It takes another kind of iron to sharpen your iron. That there is a purpose, there's a design, there's a reality. Now that's a challenge. Living in that world that, you know, that's fallen like it is, the gospel is the only thing that can bring those two worlds, which both have important truths to, to speak together. And you see, in the beginning, they were meant to be together because God was in the middle of it and people weren't playing God the way that we do now. That there was a respect for each person. God made Adam and Eve very differently. There was beauty and goodness in that. And they were taught to love and respect each other and love everything that God had made. But we've lost that because we've moved in our culture. And this is something I want to ask you to go on a journey as a church. We've been talking about this. I've said, hey, for the first few months of this year, we're going to try to re-engage in, in doing life together and going on a journey of learning how to do life together in a meaningful way. Now, it's a journey. It is not a place we're going to arrive. People who live in these traditional cultures have grasped so much of the value of where we're trying, we need to go. We're going to feel like, if we compare ourselves to them, we're going to feel like, wow, we are just kindergartners. But a lot of us, we just don't, some of you are sitting here and thinking, oh man, I've got all kinds of friends and community. We don't really know, like a fish doesn't know it's wet. We, because of our expressive individualism, because it's so entrenched, because it's been such a part of our culture, and it's taught to us when we're children, we don't realize how much it's shaped us and how much it makes us think we don't need people. And they don't need us. Sometimes we don't consciously say that, but we act like it. Do you know what I mean? The way we, the patterns of our lives show we don't really think we need people, and we really don't think they need us. And that, it's so, it's so woven into us because of our culture, our worldview. It's an unconscious part of our lives. I, I can't remember all the words to the song, but you remember Elsa's song in Frozen where she sings, let it go, right? Now, some of, you, some of the girls here, you know, 
You know, let, what, let it go. You know, I'm not, it, she's basically saying, no, I don't care about right or wrong anymore. I don't care about what other people think. And then she has this line in there. She says, the cold really doesn't bother me. And I thought, that's really, that's good songwriting. But they're promoting this idea of expressive individualism in that song. And you can go through, like Moana, if you, go, you see Moana now, there's all, go your own way is taught to us when we're children. And yet, honestly, the truth always bleeds through. The truth that we can't go our own way without paying a terrible cost always bleeds through because Elsa says, the cold really doesn't bother me. It does. It does bother us to be alone. It isn't good for us to be alone. It isn't good for us to think that we can just love ourselves enough to grow ourselves up, that we can just look into a mirror and, and speak affirmations that will have some impact on us to shape our sense of being loved. I don't think that, that that's meaningless, but it's not the most meaningful thing. Otherwise, we would just give our kids little self-affirmation cards and just say all day long, you know, little Billy, just when you feel lonely, just take that out and say, I'm loved, I'm this. They won't make it on that. We know they would. No one would do that to them. We have to say it to them. We that matter to them. The people that matter to us have to say things to us that reinforce who we are and remind us of who we are and strengthen that sense of that secure base inside us. A lot of us don't have a secure base because when we rupture, we ran back and there's nobody there. And then you just, that rupture and the pain just goes inside you. You know, there's a lot of research right now on why people are so anxious today. There's, there's literally just a, a, like a plague of anxiety in our culture. And it started back in the 50s, but it's just escalating. It's just, it's growing. Because when, when Mike and Courtney's little girl, Kaylee, gets upset, and she runs over to them, they just hug her and love her. And all that anxiety that was stirred up from what upset her just Oh, it just pours out of her. She just calms down. Oh. Then she goes away and plays. But every time we get upset and we go and there's nobody to love us and comfort us, all that stuff just settles down inside us. Just layer on layer on layer on layer until somebody comes along and pokes us and then it all comes out. And sometimes life, you're just going through life and you just get right? You're just getting poked and the anxiety just is coming up. And we medicate it, which is helpful, but that doesn't solve it. The only thing that solves it, what are we made for? Love and community. That's what solves it. Now, here's the thing. This is the journey we're on. Uh, I'm kind of summarizing it. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of it. Fear and shame are things we carry around inside. And they made our first parents hide. They hid from God. They hid from each other. Fear and shame still keep us from doing life together. Do you know what I mean? Are there any people or places in your life that you avoid? Why do you avoid them? Because they're uncomfortable. They evoke memories and things, right? And you, but we carry that around and we do it when we're not even thinking about it. When you start avoiding at one place, you will avoid in other places even when you're not conscious of it. And when you do that, you start doing life alone. 
instead of doing life together. And so God made this cool thing where he came into the world as flesh and blood in a baby like we just celebrated through Christmas and Advent, totally vulnerable, totally helpless, and said, I'm going to let you know me, and I'm going to be weak and helpless and, and a nobody. I'm going to be just like you, and I'm going to form this new community where people buy into that kind of a life, and I'm going to be in the middle of them, and I'm going to be the resource that makes that kind of a community possible. A community where people are, putting, are coming and meeting me and they're getting free of their shame and they're getting free of their fear and all those self-protective behaviors and all that avoidance and all, all the pride and insecurity and craziness we do that keeps us from doing life together, it has an answer because someone's in the middle of it. I'll be in the middle of that community. And so the, what Jesus did in the very beginning, he, would, he, he came around preaching, the kingdom of God is here. You know, God's about to start this work of redemption. And what, what he would do is he called people, he said, follow me, right? That was the gospel invitation that he makes to you. He makes to all of us. He says, follow me. If we follow Jesus, and we come to him, and, and we try to be as honest as we can, and we let him love us, as we are, and forgive us for who we are and what we've been, then he begins to pour his love into us. And then that love helps us to begin to let our guards down. It helps us to begin to love other people and forgive other people and stop avoiding other people and start being concerned about other people. And it's this journey. The Bible gives us a, a, the most consistent metaphor for a life of faith is a journey in the Bible, a walk. And so Jesus is just cruising along, and he said, come follow me. But he was inviting them to come be with him and, and experience this life. And then he said, wherever you go with that life, I will be there. And if you, let other, if you call other people to me, around you will form new communities where I'll be in the midst of them. And I will give you what none of you have on your own. And even together, the best people in the world that would try to get together and, and live a life of love, it always breaks down. You can actually go in the history of America, there's studies about people who form communes who just said, you know what? The reason why it never works is we don't get like-minded people together. And so people have, have gone on these little experiments where they create these little bubble communities of the best and the brightest and the people who all think exactly alike. And they get them together and these things hum along for a while, and then they just collapse. I mean, you, 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 can, you can read crazy, crazy stories about what people have done. But they, what they're, at the heart of it, they're trying to experience something we all want to experience. is a life together where we're really loved, where we're really respected, where we're really valued. But it's, you know, what, what Christians believe is that it's impossible without Jesus. It's impossible without Jesus. So I want to ask you to do something today. You know, as we take the Lord's Supper. Ooh, guys, that's the candles. It's lit. I thought it was like a battery-driven candle. Yikes. It's hot. I want you, I'm just going to give you some space for just a couple of minutes. And I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, where's fear in my life or where's shame in my life? You know, where have I experienced that? Because we have lots of experiences of it. 
And, and each of them influences. But we can't deal with all of them at once. But God wants us just to come to him over and over and over through Jesus and bring that fear to him and bring the shame that we feel to him and give it to him and let him begin to touch us at that place where the fear is or where the shame is. And it's a journey. Now, surprise, the journey to doing life together has to happen together. When I said go on the journey together, you, you in your mind and your imagination saw yourself, you know, I'm going on the journey together to do life together. I mean, do you get it? That's the picture that comes to your mind. If I would have closed your eyes and said, I want you to see yourself going on a journey, you would have been on the trail by yourself. That's the result of our, our American individualism. But you've got to close your eyes and you have to allow the Lord to let you populate that picture in your mind with the people all around you. It can't just be people in general. I'm going to do life with people now, right? Because a lot of people have that view about the church. They say, I love the church. I still like people. And, and uh, but what you love, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, is you love the idea of the church. You don't really love the church because the only church that there is are those gnarly people that are sitting around you. And if you don't love them, you don't love the church because that's all there is. So you go from this building to another building to whatever building to a house church to whatever. You have to learn to love people, you know, with particular faces and personalities and styles. And so you have to count that cost. That's what the Lord's doing in our church. That's one of the things he's doing among us right now. And I think it's something uh, that we don't realize how bad our, our culture really is and how much we're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, but we're not. The church is just as messed up in, in the in sense of being individualistic as the culture is. I've said to you before, the church is a spiritual drive through in America. It's just a place we go to get religious services. And, and if the coffee's too, too tepid one day, man, there's another drive through down the street. And we treat relationships like that. Not always quite as consumeristic. That is really, the, the, the person that pays for that kind of attitude is each of us. When we have that attitude, we're the ones that it's costing us the most. But we're, that's all around us. And I want to ask you today to do something different. So if the folks who are going to give out communion can just come up here, we're going to do something just a little different. When you come up, hopefully right now you've got some kind of shame or, or fear in mind, and you take the elements, before you take them, say, Lord, I give you my shame and my fear, whatever it is, a, a, a real shame and fear that you've experienced in your life. I want to let go of that, and I want you to come into that part of my life where I've been hurting, where I've failed, whatever it is. And I want, as you take the elements then, you take them in faith that Jesus is going to start just coming into that part of your life, and he's going to start helping you to let go of that fear. He's going to start covering the shame that's there so that you can come out from behind that. You can stop posing. You can stop avoiding. You can 